Good morning, church. Hey, I'm glad to be with you. My name is Tim. I am a sinner saved by grace, a husband to Aaron, a father to Reagan Lorelei, Evangeline Boston, and Finley. I am a pastor by profession, and uh, ultimately I am here to bring God's word. But I just, before I start to talk about the Super Bowl, I wanted to bring up that, you know, Jesus is super important, all right? So, okay, so who here doesn't care about Super Bowl today? Make some noise. No, 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 noise. Okay, who here is really excited about the Super Bowl? Okay, so now I know you can make noise. This sermon has some parts in it that you should make some noise in, okay? Just get prepared because there's gonna be a lot of worship today and hopefully it's for Jesus and not for some dudes playing with balls. All right, all right. We are in our series called Greater Than, second week. We are going through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an awesome letter that points to the sun. And so what I'm going to point out right now is kind of the point of the entire sermon. We're going to spend some time. What Robin just read was it sounded like it was about some angels. Here's the thing. It's not about angels. All right? That's the point. Okay? Now we're going to unpack that and work backwards. We are in this series called greater than because we believe Jesus is greater than our religious activity and any created thing. Today's passage will continually seem to be addressing angels, not what they do, not exactly what they are, not their importance or their function, but rather their existence and worth in comparison to the sun. I know it'll be really easy to get away from that reality. It'll be really easy to start to think about attributes of angels. And what I think the writer is trying to point out is how important the sun is, even to the things that we think are important, and we start to exalt above him. So this passage is not about angels. It's not about the spiritual realm apart from Christ. It's not about cracking a code or attempting to exalt a feeling or an unexplained phenomenon. It is about the sun, and through that sun, all other things can be explained. Even though all of us probably have some assumed things about angels and the angelic, while some might be spot on based on what you know about what the Word of God, the Bible says, some maybe have some thoughts about angels that are a little extra biblical. And when I say extra biblical, what I mean is that it isn't from the Bible. And we have attempted to say a hundred different ways every time we meet together on a Sunday that we believe the Word of God reveals the will of God written by the Spirit of God, which means we don't just listen to what Uncle Billy Bob says, okay? If it cannot be confirmed by scripture, the word trumps Uncle Billy Bob. Got it? All right. Sorry I said trumps. Now, are you with me? You are. Okay. Because this is, in, this is so important to what we're going to study today in this passage because we really appreciate reading the Bible. Like, we want others to read it. We want you to read it a lot. We want you to wrestle with it. We want you to digest it, not physically eat it, but actually think about what you've heard. And most importantly, we want you to be able to apply it. We want you to be able to obey it. We want you to be able to do something with it. And the goal is not being the most well-read. The Pharisees of the first century were way more read than I am. No, instead, we want you to see the Word of God as the place where all truth comes from. 
That's why we say often that we read the Bible with the gospel, the good news of grace, Jesus Christ living, dying, and rising again, being exalted in the heavens, sitting at the right hand of the Father, that everything in the gospel is how we read the Bible. It is the lens in which we read the Bible and what this book means and what this book does. Because the word draws us closer to God when read out of a want to know him better. The word gives us a better understanding of our need for a savior and God's promises and work in order to make us right with him. And on top of all of that, the gift of grace, which is received by faith. Now, grace is getting what you do not deserve. The gift of grace is what the text really points us to that God has offered us. Now, Last week, we covered Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. That's how we started the series. And in all honesty, I really did not touch on verse 4. I punted, pun intended, to this week because when I studied it, I felt like verse 4 in particular had more to do with what we're going to study today. So we're going to start in verse 4 of Hebrews 1. Here's what it says. So he, the son, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let me keep reiterating this point. While the passage today could easily be seen as making much of angels, the entire point is that Jesus is greater than, hence the series title. And in the first century, and since people, religions, and cults have been misrepresenting who Jesus actually is, they have lowered his supremacy to either be less than an angel or maybe even a really important angel. But as we say often, to lower Jesus' supremacy of being God's only son and the Christ is to miss Jesus completely. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation who never broke God's law, was not created, but for all time has been part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And verse 4 says that Jesus is superior. He is better. He is greater than the angels. And for the next 11 verses, the writer of Hebrews will explain how he is greater and how much greater he actually is. So why spend so many verses on angels that the writer says are eclipsed by the Son? Because in the first century, people's theology of God and of spiritual things had gone off the rails. Like, I want you to think about that. We're talking in the same lifetime as Jesus living, dying, and rising again. People were emphasizing the wrong things. They were making up stories. They were creating ideas about God that were nowhere near what God had actually said about himself in the scriptures. Not from the Old Testament, which we recognize as what the prophets wrote, and not from what the New Testament was beginning to be written through the apostles. So imagine this. Hot off the presses, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They have written these letters known as the Gospels, S, plural, and there's this crazy, passionate, former Pharisee named Paul, who is an apostle, who saw Jesus alive after he died, and the gospel message of grace has been proclaimed all throughout Jerusalem and Samaria and continuing to parts of Greece and all of the Roman world, and people somehow had gotten things wrong about God. I'm so glad we don't do this anymore. And that's why this doesn't seem crazy in the first century, because we still see people making things up about God all the time. Never have we been more informed or at least had more information at our beck and call, 
and yet never have we had more conspiracies and false truths in society than we do right now. Here's my big problem with this passage, because there are times when I come to a sermon and I'm like, why didn't I give this passage to Ruth? Seriously. I do not relate to angels, and I don't really relate to people who worship them, but I definitely have misunderstood them for decades. I'm four decades into this life because I tend to imagine them more like how culture explains what angels are like. So let me give you the simplistic culture version of angels. There's wings and there's harps, okay? Right? Like you guys have been to Hallmark stores, right? Or at least the people that are over 30. Yeah. But what I do relate to, and here, here is ultimately what I relate to, especially in this passage, is worshiping something other than Jesus. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of worship today happening in Las Vegas. And for people in the first century, especially the Jews who had been taught about Christ and had become Jewish Christians, in order to believe this, they they first had to be told something completely different than what they had grown up with. Imagine this, that the God that you gave sacrifices to as a young Jewish boy, if you will, the one that you feared and the one that you memorized what we know as the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the one who gave specific instruction on how to worship him, to then be told that the fulfillment of all of that book, the Old Testament, came in a lonely Jewish carpenter. Well, yeah, that sounds almost unbelievable. Or maybe they just didn't want to believe it. So what does the writer want the readers to understand? As we read this passage, which Robin read, which you've kind of heard ahead of time, that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the left side starting in Genesis, it pointed to a God-man. It pointed to a Savior. It pointed to a Christ. And that God-man, that Son of Man, that Son of God was better than the angels who many worship and emphasize because they were mystical and they were spiritual. And we as people want to worship the gods of our own desires. We want to give worth to things that maybe we can control or maybe we can get to identify with us. And so when the writer says that he, Jesus, the son who became superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs, he is pointing out that Jesus accomplished what the Christ, what the son of God, heir of all things would actually do. And the son has inherited from the father the name that is above every name. So here we go, verse 5. The writer says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, real quick, we're really big on community groups up in here, up in here, okay? We really enjoy community groups. We really want people connected. I've gotten to talk with a lot of you about the community groups that started last week. Real quick plug, if you have not signed up for a group and you kind of want to, go talk to Karen, Miss Kittle. No, just kidding, Mrs. Miller. Um, she's wearing a Kittle jersey, 85. Yes. All right? Because she, in particular, wants and encourages us as a church to be in community and be with one another. But for those of you that are in a group, I'm going to quote a lot of Old Testament passages, but I'm not going to read them necessarily. I'm just going to give you the reference, and 
I didn't necessarily uh, give this to you in the questions. So there will be slides with the references in which these mean. Feel free to take a picture or write them down if you want to look at them later. All right, so the writer continues, as we just read this, with this point that Jesus is greater by asking, which angel did God ever call his son? And the answer, none of them. No angel is God's son. Sure, in Genesis 6, if, if you're a, a Bible nerd like me, you probably know about where it talks about the sons of God, and he's referring to angels, fallen angels, demons. But the son, singular, of God is a title only reserved for Jesus, or really, God the Son. Genesis 6 speaks about the sons of God, and then heads into a territory about giants, okay? That people have all these questions about. I've been asked many times about these giants, and we actually preached a sermon on this. During the pandemic, it was Genesis 6, the sermon was called, Missing the Forest for the Trees. And that is my problem with this passage that we're reading today in Hebrews. Don't we hear this passage as it's talking about angels? And we're like, wait, aren't angels eunuchs? Bro, that's not what this passage is about. The point is that everything spiritual is under the authority of the Son. And that is the name that Jesus has inherited. So in this passage right before that I just read, verse uh, 5, this is a quote from Psalm 2.7 and 2 Samuel 7.14. And the point of the verse is to tell us that the name that is so superior to angels, it's the name Son. So verse 4 says that Christ has inherited a more excellent name than angels. Then verse 5 says, for which angel did God ever say, you are my son? The superior name is the Son of God. Remember the thing we say often, we allow Scripture to interpret scripture. And I'm gonna give you an application of this regarding the Son of God, or God the Son, as Paul begins his letter to the church in Rome. Here's what he says in Roman, Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, addressing the church in Rome, he has not been there. He's writing this letter and he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, just like the text said that the Savior would be, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Last week, we spent a lot of time explaining and even demonstrating how the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, or as the New Testament writers refer to, the prophets, all pointed to Jesus throughout the letters in Genesis and Exodus and Isaiah and Numbers and many, many more. But Paul writes about Jesus being the Son of God who is appointed or determined. How? By the power of of his resurrection. So real quick, um, I'd like us to take a quick field trip, okay? But only based on what I'm saying. You don't have to get up and go anywhere, all right? Here's the field trip, all right? The Old Testament foreshadowed that there would be a Messiah, that he would be born and, and how that birth would happen. 
The Old Testament foreshadowed the Messiah's life. It foreshadowed the Messiah's death. It foreshadowed the resurrection. The New Testament constantly points back to the Messiah's life, to his death, to his resurrection. And without the resurrection, hear me, we have no hope. None. Without the resurrection, Christianity is worthless. If Jesus did not rise, we might as well pack it up and turn this into houses, this three and a half acres. But, (laughs) it's a big but. Paul writes about Jesus being the son of God, and he points out to the church in Corinth that if if the resurrection didn't happen, we ought to be pitied more than anyone. But if it did happen, read with me. But if it is preached, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Real quick, I grew up an atheist, mostly because my mom died when I was young and I really got mad at the idea of God. I couldn't believe in a God who would allow something so bad to happen when I was so young and so impressionable. And my dad was an agnostic uh, uh he was an agnostic, but he thought he was spiritual. Anyway, and so, so I would have these conversations with people about Christianity, and I wanted nothing to do with it. And then someone challenged me with, what is Christianity based on? And I said, dressing nice and going to church on Sunday. And he said, no. It's all based on if Jesus rose from the dead or not. And I was like, whatever. People, dead, dead men tell no tales. I've, I've seen Pirates of the Caribbean. He, ain't, he didn't come back. And then I read this verse. And if Christ has not been raised or preaching is useless and so is your faith. And I thought, if I'm going to tell you that my faith is true in a book, that Jesus is real, I'm not going to tell you how to uh, argue against it. But he says, if Christ did not rise, then our faith is useless. And then he goes on, verse 15, he says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Star Wars reference. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people should be most pitied. Now, Paul points out that if our belief in Jesus stops in this life, like we just believe and we spend our life kind of going, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then we die and nothing happens, and there's no resurrection from the dead for him, then there's no resurrection from, for the dead for us. But, church, hear me, there absolutely is a resurrection of the Son. There absolutely is a resurrection of Jesus who on the third day did not stay in the grave, but instead conquered it, not spiritually. He conquered death physically. And if Jesus can rise from the dead, brah, I'm with him. Favorite story of mine is told of an African Muslim who became a Christian. His friends asked him, why have you become a Christian? And he answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down a road, and suddenly the road forked in two directions, 
and you didn't know which way to go. There at the fork were two men, one dead, one alive. Who would you ask for directions from? Come on. So here, here, here's the thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've said, yes, I identify with Christ and his finished work, it's not about what I do. It's not about what I've done. It's about what Christ has done. Then do not take for granted the importance and the magnitude and the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus because he rose. And don't take my word for it. Look into it. He rose. Now, there are things in this faith, in Christianity, that require us to have faith based on unproven assumptions. All right, I'm going to give you one. Jesus being born of a virgin. Like, I have faith that this happened, but I don't put all my faith in just this in and of itself. I believe it happened, but this is not the point. See, Jesus was born of a virgin. The Bible says it's true. The Old Testament said it would happen. The New Testament said it did happen. Mary was yet to be married. And the society and culture of the day was significantly less sympathetic to sexual relations outside of a committed marriage bed. So by faith, yeah, I believe that the Messiah was born of a virgin Mary. But the resurrection... The Old Testament said that it would happen. The New Testament said it did happen. But history in this alleged time period changed so drastically in the place in which Jesus' resurrection supposedly happened and all the arguments against the resurrection seem almost ludicrous when picked apart, even though some of them seem to make sense when you first hear it. And the responses of the people who were eyewitnesses for me is the best evidence that I personally know. Now, this is not a sermon full on apologetics and deep dive into the resurrection, but the disciples were eyewitnesses to his death and to his resurrection, and they would not shut up about Jesus being the Christ, even when threatened with physical harm even when threatened with death, even to the point of death, because they were so sure that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that were true, everything he said was true. And we're not talking about one person. We're talking about over 10, right away, after Jesus showed himself to them, they didn't run and hide like they did when he first got captured. No, something happened that was so memorable so life-altering, so eternally important that self-preservation was no longer their natural response. What would you have to experience in order for self-preservation not to be your natural response? Because the supernatural, in this case, had intervened and made known that the life beyond the grave was possible. So much so that 10 plus, or really 11, Judas was a poser, let's just be real. Those 11 began to proclaim that Jesus was alive, and many upon many others also saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion, so much so that the entire surrounding area of Jerusalem was beginning to change overnight. How many of you have spent a lot of time in the church? How long does it take the church to change anything? And it was changing overnight. Why? Because of the message of the good news that Jesus was alive. And it was personified, this gospel, in the risen Jesus who was being proclaimed. And then on top of that, Jesus' 
own brother, one who did not believe that he, that Jesus was anything more than just a zealous rabbi, decided to give up his Judaism, to give up his religion, and he followed his own brother as God. You know what I'm about to ask. How many of you have siblings? Ruth, how hard would it be for Brent to convince you that he was God? Very hard. And Jesus started to fall, or James started to follow Jesus as God, his own brother. So if that's not ridiculous enough, there was this guy named Saul, super zealous. He was passionate. He was passionate for Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Saul was so passionate that he did all of the religious traditions expected of him from being circumcised on the eighth day, he had no say in that, to studying under the most knowledgeable and respected Pharisee of the time period to the point that as early as he could, Saul became a Pharisee and was so vigorous in his religious activity that he became a huge supporter and activist of putting a stop to what he believed was this zealous cult known as the way is what they were called. Eventually, they became known as Christians who believed that the Messiah that the Old Testament spoke about was a God and a man, a God-man in the Son of God named Jesus. And there were hundreds of people proclaiming that Jesus was God and that he rose from the dead. And so Saul saw people who were claiming this, claiming that Jesus was the Messiah and he made sure that many of them were put to death. So much so that he was present at Stephen the deacon's abduction and arrest when he was put to death. And Saul was all about this, all for this, and possibly the most outspoken opponent of Christianity ever. Until one day, as he was walking on the road to Damascus with a few other uh, religious zealots alongside him, Saul, who later would be known as Paul, came in contact with Jesus of Nazareth post-resurrection, and Saul didn't just stop killing Christians and go home. He joined the Christians as the most quoted and documented writer of all of the apostles. That, my friends, well, personally, does not blow my mind as much as Jesus's own brother worshiping him as God. In fact, all his family ended up doing so. Or even 11 others who multiplied into hundreds once they saw Jesus alive after he died. Saul, who became Paul, is probably the most important apologetic in all of history as he was used by God for his glory as a messenger of good news who was once a persecutor and opponent of the gospel. So you want to know why I believe? It's not just because I've read through the Bible a few times. I believe because I am convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? All right, back from the field trip. Verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The writer of Hebrews, again, quoting the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, makes more evidence of how the angels, according to the prophets, were never given the prestige and power that the Son was given. Now, the writer quotes Deuteronomy 32.43 and Psalm 104.4, but I'm going to read Deuteronomy 32.43 for you, and you'll notice that something in this verse isn't what was just said. Rejoice, you nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants 
He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and his people. Um, okay. Um, wh where does the writer quote the angels worshiping the sun? And here was the mystery for well over a thousand years. The writer of Hebrews quotes this verse, and no one knows where. No one thought it was Deuteronomy 32, 43. The, he, the writer of Hebrews quotes this, and for a very long time, no one had any idea what he was quoting. In 1947, in a village situated about 20 miles east of Jerusalem on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, that's your spoiler, a young shepherd following a goat that had gone astray tossed a rock into a cave along the sea cliffs, and he heard a cracking sound. The rock had hit a ceramic pot containing leather scrolls that were later determined to be nearly 20 centuries old. Ten years and many searches later, 11 caves around the Dead Sea were found to contain tens of thousands of scroll fragments dating from the 3rd century BC to 68 AD and representing an estimated 800 separate works. The Dead Sea Scrolls, comprised of a vast collection of Jewish documents written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Guess what the Bible's written in? Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And encompassing many subjects and literary styles, they include manuscripts or fragments of every book in the Hebrew Bible, except for Esther. All of them were created nearly 1,000 years earlier than any previously known biblical manuscript. And the scrolls also contain the earliest existing biblical commentary on the book of Habakkuk and many other writings, among them religious works pertaining to Jewish sects of the time. Why is that important? Tim, why are you going on another field trip? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls had a very interesting deviation from what in the 20th century was known as Deuteronomy, which added a few words regarding angels of God worshiping the Messiah. And there are footnotes in your Bible, unless you use King James. But what is so interesting to me is that the writer of Hebrews quotes this, and for almost 2,000 years, people didn't know where he was quoting from. All right, not the point, but it was interesting to me. So don't miss the forest for the trees. Moving on. All right, verse 7. In the speaking of angels, the writer says, he makes his angels spirits, not, not uh, drinks, spirits, and his servants flames of fire. The writer then quotes Psalm 104.4 to point to the fact that God does not speak about angels the same way he speaks about the sun, that the angels are subservient just as nature is transient and moves about God's will. So do the angels, and God compares them to spirits and flames of fire, but look at how the writer then transitions to the Son using the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures again. He says this in verse 8. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The writer then quotes or mashes up, if you will, Isaiah 61, 1, verse 3, Psalm 45, 6 through 7, in which he is pointing out that these verses regarding the Son are about God. And something that stood out to me as I studied about this text is that God, the Son, 
is not God because he's God's son. You hear me? God is in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So as the writer points out, God the Son, Jesus, is being addressed in this passage of Isaiah and the psalm. And all of this is to make the case that worship of angels and the exaltation of angels is misguided and a misunderstanding because the Son is greater. And then look at how he continues. Verse 10, he also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. So he quotes Psalm 8, 6. Zechariah 12.1, and then he quotes Isaiah 34.4 and chapter 51, verse 6. And then he goes back and he quotes Psalm 102.25 through 27. While also, if the psalmist knew it or not, was going to eventually be confirmed in the book of Hebrews when the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, most of you in this room are my friend. All right? Some of you I don't really know yet. I hope we'll be friends. But I'm starting with that caveat because I'm about to call us out. And when I say us, I mean us. This son that we worship, God the son, he is the same. Always. We don't have to worry about him changing his mind. He doesn't give us salvation and then go, oops, you were bad. You're out. He doesn't change his mind even based on our inability to be consistent. We're not consistent. May I just say that as a people, Christians, we're fickle. I just said inconsistent, but with a cuter word. The reality is that we're all hypocrites. We're all, we all change our minds often. We all are inconsistent no matter how much we think we're consistent but our perfect and holy Savior. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and we have known that since the Old Testament. And so we worship him, the one who does what we do not do. So, the, so back in chapter one, the writer of Hebrews continues with the contrast between the sons and the angels. He says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand <laughs> until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The writer asks this rhetorical question once again, asking when did an angel get this said about him? He quotes Psalm 110.1 again, which he quoted many times or is quoted many times in the New Testament, including in Matthew 22.44. It's quoted in Acts 2.34 through 35 as Peter is preaching at Pentecost, speaking of Christ. Matthew alludes to it in to this psalm in Matthew 26, 64. Mark alludes to it in Mark 14, 62. Luke alludes to it in Luke 22, 69. Paul alludes to it in Romans 8, 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Ephesians 1, 20. Colossians 3, 1. It's almost like redundancy matters. And the writer of Hebrew alludes to it and quotes it in Hebrews 1, 3. This verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 10, verse 12, and every time it is quoted or mentioned, it is in the context of Jesus as the Messiah. 
And here the writer of Hebrews gets as clear as he can. The son is given preeminence throughout the Old Testament because the prophets spoke of the son this way. Not the angels, not anyone else. And that is the writer of Hebrews' point all along. No angel ever was given the honor of sitting at God the Father's right hand, the place of highest honor, highest prestige. That seat is reserved for Jesus Christ, God the Son, alone. So quick reminder, we're almost done. Last week, we said about 10 verses previously in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It is passages like this, church, that we, we're just starting in Hebrew, but it, Hebrews, but it is passages like this that are so very consistent, especially in the book of Hebrews, that reminds us and encourages me that Jesus is the word, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. And it all points to him or back to him. So let's conclude with what the writer ends with in this thought regarding what the angels actually do. Have your pens ready, even though this isn't the point. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Well, yes. Yes, they are. And while Jesus came to earth, as he states in Matthew 20, verse 28, here's what he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus, the God-man, served the world by serving mankind, not just through his example, but really through his sacrifice. So that righteousness, right standing before a holy and perfect God, even though we're sinful, could be inherited through what Jesus did on our behalf. The Son, who died and rose again, comes back in his glory, and angels bow down, and they worship, and they serve him. So Malik, come on up, and I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 5. Here's what the Apostle John foresaw. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times, 10 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And who is the worthy one? Who is the Lamb of God? The perfect sacrifice. God, the Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the point. And so what do angels do? They minister to those who will inherit salvation. Is that all they do? No. Scripture speaks to other things they do, all under the power and authority of God. But that is not the point of this passage. Why? Because Jesus is the point. It's not a deep dive into angels. All of what the writer states here is to make abundantly clear that the angels are below Jesus the Son and that God the Son is preeminent and angels are under his authority in reign. So, or reign, yeah, reign. Hear me. We miss the forest for the trees in Christianity all the time. Sometimes we don't mean to, but we turn Jesus and following him into a religion. Some think the Bible speaks too much about giving money 
But every time Jesus seemed to bring it up, he seemed to be pointing to your heart and not allowing anything material to be more important than God. We spend a lot of time trying to crack the code of when Jesus will come back, not actually paying attention to the application of being urgent with our evangelism and our holiness. We really enjoy spiritual gift tests and tend to exalt those with the pretty gifts, pretty gifts, usually forgetting that the gifts are given to glorify the gift giver. But what I believe is the biggest misunderstanding spiritually is when we don't believe that God actually gives us grace. So we instead attempt to earn or pay back God for his free gift of salvation. Grace, my friends, is getting what you do not deserve. And if you attempt to make salvation about you, what you can do, what you have done, if you justify yourself by what you have accomplished, even in good stuff, oh, I was baptized, or I really know a lot about the Bible, you are in need of God's, you, if you are justifying yourself by anything you have done, you don't think you need God's grace because you think you can do it on your own. So church, I love you. Like really, I do. I seriously do. But if you attempt to make Christianity about anything but Christ, living, dying, rising, ascending, being glorified, you have missed it. And you have followed a religion and missed the beautiful relationship that is offered by God, with God, through God, the Son, trading his life for yours. So let's not miss the forest for the trees. Let's not major in the minors. I love theology. I love apologetics, but they are not the point. Jesus is the point. And it is Jesus in his salvation and his sanctification that are offered through faith, put into practice, that we get to love God and love others. And Christ will reign and rule over those who trust and follow him at his word. So Malik's going to lead us in two songs. And then we're going to have some announcements. We're going to share some takeaways. And then we're going to go off and have the opportunity to worship at the altar of the NFL. but don't miss that Jesus is the point. You're going to see commercials today. I know that they've spent millions of dollars trying to point out who Jesus is in some of these commercials. And you'll have a funny Budweiser commercial, and then you'll have a Jesus commercial. And watch those commercials. Don't just be like, oh, it's about Jesus. It's great. Pay attention to what they're saying. Is it biblical? Is it true? Is it real? Because we don't want to teach people about a false Jesus. We want to teach people about Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, who is the word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that my team's in the Super Bowl. Like, I just want to be honest about that. But more importantly than that, God, far more importantly than that, thank you that you'd save a sinner like me. God, I still think it's ridiculous that you allow me to teach this, considering all the times I've flipped you off in my mind, if I'm honest all the times I have blasphemed you, all the times I have tried to live life my own way and still, unfortunately, try to sometimes. But God, your grace is amazing. Your grace abounds. Jesus, I never want to discount the cross. What you did on that cross paid for all the sins, past, present, and future, that I and all the people in this room will do. So may we live accordingly, knowing 
that you loved us. When we were at our worst, you loved us, and we get to live for you, God. And you proved that in us. You evidenced that in us by allowing us to slowly, as we trust you, look more like you. So God, do a work in our hearts. Grow us to want you more. Help us fall deeper in love with Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.